Though we'd all agree that there is quite a disconnect between our Christmas traditions and the religious story of Jesus' birth. Can we all concede that for a moment? There's kind of a disconnect between the holiday of Christmas and the religious observance of Jesus. And yet, there are two things both of these narratives have in common. First, whether it's the account of good old St. Nicholas traveling from the North Pole on a sleigh pulled by reindeer to each of our homes, working his way down the chimney so that he can quietly present presents under the tree, or it's the record of a young virgin girl giving birth to the Son of God in a quaint stable outside the ancient town of Bethlehem. Both of these tales, the tale of Santa Claus and the tale of Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the shepherds, the nativity, both of these tales have the unique, unique ability to captivate an audience and spark the imagination. Fundamentally, if you're looking for a commonality, both of these stories, our Christmas traditions and the story of Jesus' birth, they're good tales. They're good stories, which explains why most families around Christmas incorporate both of them into their holidays. And yet, there's a second commonality that these stories have that I find very interesting. You see, unlike other classic Christmas stories, stories like It's a Wonderful Life, The Grinch, A Christmas Carol, or my personal favorite, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, these two foundational Christmas tales don't base their appeal on the central characters being all that relatable. Like, for example, the story arc of Ebenezer Scrooge, or for that matter, The Grinch, kind of relatable. The stories challenge each of us to be generous instead of self-consumed and greedy. The story of George Bailey, his experiences, they illustrate the importance of family and community as being the greatest gift of all, very relatable. The dysfunctional story of Clark Griswold, also relatable. His story demonstrating the importance of all bosses giving good bonuses for the holidays. It's something we can all relate to if you want to build that pool. But that being said, the story of Santa Claus isn't relatable in the slightest. It doesn't even attempt to be relatable. And if we're being honest, the same rings true for the nativity scene. No woman can possibly relate to, to being a virgin and conceiving the Son of God. You can't find that very relatable. Aside from this, name one other man but Joseph who's had to navigate the fallout of having his betrothed wife divinely impregnated. I can't relate to Joseph and what he went through. Beyond all of that, the experiences of the shepherds being personally invited by an angelic host to visit the newborn king, that is something absolutely unique only to them. None of these characters, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, are all that relatable, which is fine, because the story itself doesn't demand them to be relatable, to be profoundly powerful. And yet, while all this is true, this is what I find 
so interesting about Matthew's account, not of Christmas, but of what follows the birth of Jesus, so interesting. You see, the story of a group of wise men from the east and a Judean king named Herod, those tales do present for us some very relatable characters. Now, before I explain why they're so relatable, let's read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2 and unpack their story. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, these wise men. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw, saw the star, the wise men rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Before I take the time to explain what makes these ancient characters so relatable to our first century context, I should begin by at least admitting that you would be very hard-pressed to find a more mysterious group of, of men in all of the Bible than these wise men. I mean, we assume that there were three of them because they brought three gifts, but the fact of the matter is that we're not even told how many wise men were actually present. Could have been three. Was more than one because it's in the plural. Could have been 50. We have no idea. So many questions. You know, as you're reading through Matthew's account, and you go from this genealogy to the story of Jesus' birth to then chapter 2, I mean, questions immediately abound. Logical ones. Who in the world are these wise men? Like, where did they come from? Why would foreigners care that a king of the Jews had been born? Yet alone, what motivated them to come to worship him? How did they know to look for the star? Doesn't that seem weird? And beyond that, how was it that this particular star indicated that such an important birth had occurred? Aside from this, why were the wise men like almost two years late? Why did they not know to go to Bethlehem? Why instead did they go to Jerusalem to gain further directions? Why upon their arrival did they present gifts, weird gifts, by the way, weird gifts for a baby, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? 
I mean, questions upon questions upon questions and logical ones. Now, as we attempt to answer some of these questions, let's just begin with what we know from the text. Like, what does the text actually tell us? First, Matthew. Matthew informs us that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And that actually does tell us quite a bit. In the Greek, the word used for wise men, magos, can be translated as magi, the magi. And what makes this word interesting is that Matthew's account is not the first time we encounter magi in the Bible. Historically speaking, magi, it was a common position in positions of nobility in the Orient. But scripturally speaking, the word magi was used to describe men who, who held all kinds of various positions. Magis, from a scriptural standpoint, could be anything from a teacher to a priest to a physician, an astrologer, a seer, a soothsayer, even a sorcerer could be a magi. In Genesis chapter 41, and then again in Exodus chapter 7, the word magi is used to describe the counselors of Pharaoh. They're called magi. And the story of Queen Esther, magi, this word is once again used to describe the advisors of the Persian king. In the book of Daniel, you'll even come to discover the wise men, or magi, were part of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's inner circle of confidants. Contextually, since our passage tells us they, they were wise men, or magi, from the east, we can rule out them coming from Egypt, which was south. Clearly, they came from the remnants of the Babylonian and Persian empires. The second thing that Matthew tells us that we know from the text is that these magi, they came from the east to do what? They came searching for the king of the Jews. Now, it's, it's highly unlikely that these men were Jewish, ethnically. Instead, they were probably pagan. They were Gentiles. They were Persians. But it is obvious that they possessed some type of Hebrew religious heritage. I mean, why else? Would you even be looking for the king of the Jews? Like the very nature of the quest itself indicates that they understood that there was a Jewish king coming and that that king would be very important. It only, it's the only reason to explain why they would travel a thousand miles, give or take, through very tough desert terrain to find him. The final thing that, that we're told, without a doubt, from, from the text is that these magi... They came because they had seen his star in the east and they wanted to worship Jesus. While it would have been completely customary for another nation to send a delegation, to pay homage, respect, when, when the son of a, of a king had been born, that was a normal practice in the Orient, the text tells us that these men are not coming to pay homage, they're not coming to pay respect, it's not a tip of the cap. Instead, their, their purpose and coming is much deeper than that. Matthew says they came to worship Jesus. This word worship, it's an interesting, it's an interesting word. It, it, it means more than just being respectful. The word literally means to bow the knee as an expression of profound reverence. Now, it's at this point that there are two logical questions that arise. 
thank you, Matthew, for what you told us, but there's some things you failed to tell us. And first, like, why were the wise men looking for the birth of the Jewish king? And two, how does a star play into this? How does a star indicate the timing of Jesus' birth? Though the text is mum to these questions. I do think in describing them as wise men from the East, Matthew is doing something very interesting. I think Matthew's actually giving us, a Bible student, a clue as to the identity, the origin of these men. Now, what I'm going to share is admittedly a bit of conjecture. Like, you can't build a solid theological argument based upon it, but I think that there's some interesting facts to validate it. In order to understand who these men are, in order to answer these two questions... You have to rewind the clock about 500 years to a Jewish prophet living in Babylon by the name of Daniel. Before I talk about Daniel, I just need to set a little context for his story. Following an elongated season of rebellion by the Jewish people, the people of God, God used the Babylonian Empire to be his vessel of judgment for the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. Not only was Jerusalem ultimately sacked, the temple destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, but the Hebrew people were sent into exile, and a choice collection of young men were brought back to the capital to serve as advisors. Daniel happened to be one of these young men. Now Daniel, very spiritual man, a very godly man, taken from his homeland, placed into a foreign capital, meant to serve the king. You can read all all about his story. Uh, in in the book of Daniel, but he was concerned. He had an honest concern, a genuine concern, that the Jewish people had so permanently vacated their privilege through their rebellion that God was done with them. This was a a fear that Daniel had, that the Babylonian conquest was a permanent judgment, that God was done with the Hebrew people. And because this burden and the subsequent implications of this were great, In order to calm Daniel's fears, God does something interesting. He comes to Daniel, and he allows Daniel to peer into the future in order to see that not only did God still have a plan for the people of Israel, but that the long-promised Savior, the rightful King of the Jews, would present himself to Israel, specifically would present himself exactly 483 years from a decree, a future decree, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We know this prophecy. It's it's called Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Now what makes this significant? Bear with me. This is going someplace. We know this specific portion of the prophecy recorded in Daniel chapter 9. The fact that from the command to go and rebuild Jerusalem to the presentation of the Messiah to Israel, to Jerusalem, we know that this was fulfilled exactly 483 years, or 173,880 days from King Artaxerxes' decree, which took place on March 14, 445 B.C., which allowed the Jewish people to return and rebuild Jerusalem, when, on April 632 A.D., what happens? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what takes place? the people start cutting down palm branches and they start hailing him as what? Hosanna, Hosanna, the king of the Jews. Daniel sees this event 
some 500 years before the fact. It's an amazing prophecy. As a matter of fact, Jesus even seems to make a reference to this in Luke 19. Let me read you a section of scripture. We're told, then the disciples brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as Jesus was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, as he's entering Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they called to Jesus from the crowd as all of this is happening. And they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you that if these, speaking of his disciples, should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he began to weep over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus seems to affirm that this day he's entering Jerusalem, predicted so many years before by Daniel, was so significant that if the people weren't recognizing it, nature itself would have cried out, for this was their day. The presentation of their Messiah, their king, which they ultimately would end up rejecting. Now, this is where things become relevant for our purposes this morning. While Daniel had not only received prophetic insight concerning the future arrival of the Messiah, Daniel also was just a good guy. Like, he ends up proving himself to King Nebuchadnezzar as such a trustworthy advisor that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, we're given something interesting. We're told that the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and Nebuchadnezzar made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. That's the last time you read of wise men before you get to Matthew chapter 2. Now, is it an accident that wise men from the east had been years before specifically placed under Daniel's charge before they come to seek out Jesus? Like, is it, is it outside the realm of possibility that since Daniel knew when the Messiah would be revealed to Israel, is it then a leap that he established an order of the wise men charged with instructions to present specific gifts to the birth of this king? Additionally, because one of the areas of expertise concerning the order of wise men, especially in Babylon, was astrology, is it likely that, that Daniel, knowing when the Christ would reveal himself, was able to designate the pattern of, the, of a particular star? that would position itself over Judea close to the birth of the Messiah, that the star acted as many ways as a countdown for when the Magi were supposed to leave to get to Judea. Since stars were used in the ancient world for navigational tools, is it far-fetched to assume that maybe Daniel left behind instructions for a group of men pinpointing the star approximately 450 years, saying, when this happens, follow the star, bring these gifts, they're from me. I think the reason the wise men show up is that Daniel sent them. Daniel commissioned them. 
Daniel knew it was going to happen. It's why the wise men told King Herod what? They had seen a star? No. Specifically, they said they had seen his star in the east and had come to worship. Furthermore, I think this also explains why the wise men end up arriving late. Like, in case you're unaware, the wise men were not part of the original nativity. You know, we have a nativity on our mantle. It drives me nuts because you've got Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in a stable, which really shouldn't be a stable. It should be a a hole in the wall. It should be like a cave. It should be dank and disgusting and dirty. And then you should have a lot of animals and shepherds. And then you should take the wise men and put them in like the kitchen. Like that should be like the way we set up our nativities at Christmas time because they weren't there. They came much later, which is interesting, right? Think about it, Daniel. Daniel knew when the Messiah would present himself to Israel, but he didn't know how old the Messiah would be. Process of elimination, he could maybe get close to the date, but he couldn't nail the date. So he gets within a time frame. Notice Matthew begins his account. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came to Jerusalem. He also says, when they had come into the what? The house, not the stable. Joseph upgraded, good for him. When they do arrive, what do they see? Well, we're told they see the young child, which is much different than Luke's description of Jesus being found by shepherds as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Most biblical scholars believe that the wise men arrive around 18 months after Jesus' birth, which explains, it gives Daniel a little wiggle room, right? He got close, didn't nail it. He was only left to speculate. Aside from all of that, consider that really only Daniel's involvement, from my estimation, could provide a logical explanation as to why the wise men brought these particular gifts. Very quickly, these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were weird, weird to give to a baby, but they had a specific meaning and a purpose. Gold, gold was the gift of royalty, nobility. Frankincense was almost specifically used by priests in the worship of God. Myrrh, Myrrh was nothing more than a common burial spice. It'd be like going to, uh, to visit a baby in a hospital and bringing like embalming fluid. Bizarre. You know, if left to themselves, it's hard to reason how the wise men would bring these gifts. But not so with Daniel. See, Daniel was one of the most Christ-centric of all of the prophets. Daniel had a broad understanding, not just of when Jesus would come, but what he would come to accomplish Daniel knew that the Messiah would be a king, which is why there was gold. He knew this king would be God, our great high priest, which is why there was frankincense. And then according to the same 70 weeks prophecy, Daniel also knew that the Messiah would be cut off, that he would die for the sins of the people, which is why he sends myrrh. Now, one more very quick observation that most people overlook about our story that that is important. Notice that while Matthew begins by telling us that this star led the wise men roughly a thousand miles from the east into Judea, 
as they get close to their destination, and keep in mind, Bethlehem's a suburb of Jerusalem, about two miles outside of the city. But as they get close, do you notice something? It seems that the star disappears. Like, look what happens when the wise men leave the encounter with Herod. Matthew says that when they heard the king, behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood where the young child was. It would seem from the text that as the wise men are getting close to their final destination, which we know to be Bethlehem, the star, it vanishes on them. Like they've now lost their only way of navigating. So what do they do? They do something logical. They go to Jerusalem, the capital of the area, to consult with whom? King Herod. They're looking for the king of the Jews. You've lost your star. You go to Jerusalem and you encounter Herod. As far as they were aware, Herod would have known, been in the know about the king of the Jews, but he wasn't. Which leads to another component of our story that I need to address before I get into why these men are all relatable. King Herod is quite a, quite a character. Herod the Great, as we know historically, was an Arab, wasn't a Jew. He was an Arab by birth, specifically an Edomite. He had been granted the title of king of the Jews, or king of Judea, by the Roman Senate. He was a political pawn. He was confirmed by a good friend, Caesar Augustus. But what makes Herod very interesting, aside from his sadistic characteristics and tendencies, was that he was weirdly religious. Approximately 50 years before Herod's birth, in this area there was a Jewish man by the name of John Maccabeus. He conquered Edom. And one of the things that John Maccabeus required was that all of the Edomites had really one of two options. They could leave or they could convert to Judaism, which meant that they'd have to be circumcised and adhere to all of the Jewish laws and practices. Herod's family remained, which meant beyond developing and maintaining a good report among the Jews living in his dominion, as an Edomite proselyte, Herod deeply desired to be accepted by the religious community. Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, actually mentions this in his histories. But it might also explain why Herod does something interesting. He dumps an incredible amount of money into the renovation of the dilapidated temple. What becomes known as Herod's Temple, before it was later destroyed uh, by Titus in 70 AD, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Herod. Sadistic, deeper religious, wants acceptance. He cherished his position as king. He relished its power, so much so that we're told that he notoriously killed off anyone who even remotely posed to be a threat. Killed a second wife, killed three of his sons. Which means that imagine you're King Herod. Here you are, you're in your palace. Foreign dignitaries from the east, they, they show up out of the blue. They knock on the door. Herod opens, hey, what's up, guys? And they're like, hey, we're, we'd like to know where the born king of the Jews is. We've seen a star. We've come to worship. This would have sent up alarm bells all over the place for Herod. A born king of the Jews was the ultimate threat to his power. 
A born king would have a rightful claim to the throne that he'd taken by force and worked so hard to hold on to. A born king would immediately undermine his standing with the Jewish community. A born king placed Herod's position in peril. What's interesting about the story is that Matthew tells us that Herod doesn't brush off the request of the wise men, does he? Instead, he took their inquiry very seriously. We're told he doesn't know where this king is. So he gathers all the chief priests and all the scribes of the people together, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. Like this detail, to me it's fascinating because it tells us that Herod understood the messianic prophecies. He accepted them. Herod recognized that a born king at this point in Jewish history had to be none other than the Christ, the long-promised Messiah. Notice Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He literally demanded from them an explanation. And in Herod's case, you gave him an answer. And so what happens? The scribes, the priests, the religious leaders, they put their heads together. And where do they go? They go to Scripture. Well, where would the king be born? And they consult with the prophecies of Micah. And they come back with an answer. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by Micah the prophet, Behold you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. And they explain it. Now, look at the progression of the text. Let me summarize a few things. The star leads the wise men to Jerusalem. The wrong location. The wise men then logically turn to Herod's counsel, his advice, but he's clueless. So Herod consults the religious leaders who don't have an, an answer ready. So they go to Scripture. They go to the Bible. They determine the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, which, this detail, is then shared with the wise men. The star now magically reappears, leading them not just to Bethlehem, but specifically to the house that Jesus, the young child, was living in. To our purposes. What makes these men, all of them, the wise men, Herod, the religious leaders, what makes them so relatable? If Mary, Joseph, the shepherds are unrelatable for obvious reasons, what makes these men relatable? Let me ask, were any of them, the wise men, King Herod, or the scribes and priests present for Jesus' birth? Were they there that first night? No. Were you there? No. How about this? Were any of them drawn to Jesus through a supernatural intervention provided by an angelic being? Like the shepherds. Has that happened to you? No, it hadn't happened to me. Like, and if you take into account that the stars really not all of that supernatural, if you factor in Daniel's involvement, Here's the point. Like everyone not present that first night, all of these characters, they received a measure of revelation as to what happened when? After the fact. So here's the point. Yes, they're 18 months after the fact. We're 2,000 years after the fact. But we're all after the fact. Okay, so that's, that's the point. This is all after, none of us were there. None of us saw it. None of us went to the stable. We are all after the fact. And in actuality, 
whether or not they encountered Jesus or whether or not we encountered Jesus is determined by the same thing. What we do with the revelation we've been given. The wise men were given a measure of revelation. Whether they encountered Jesus was determined on what they did with it. Herod was given a measure of revelation. Whether or not he encountered Jesus was determined upon what he did with it. The priests and the scribes were given a measure of revelation. Whether or not they encountered Jesus was determined on what they did with that revelation. You and I, today, have been given a measure of revelation. And whether or not we encounter Jesus is also determined upon what we do with it. Yes, the wise men. They had a star that brought them to Jerusalem. But it was the revelation provided through God's word. Coupled with their faith in that revelation provided in God's word that led them to encounter Jesus. Equipped with a location revealed by scripture, they came to the house and they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and they worshiped presenting gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Please understand what this story teaches us and why I think Matthew's brilliant in including it. Because it is so relatable. What the story of the wise men and Herod and these priests teaches us, what makes it relatable is this. What you know is not nearly as important as what you do with what you know. I'm going to repeat that. It's not rocket science, but we miss it. What you know isn't as important as what you do with what you know. As Russian playwright Anton Chegev, he stated this, knowledge is of no value unless you put it into practice. And that's a truth. Jesus even promised in Luke 11 verse 9, and he, he promised something that the wise men illustrate that those who seek will find. There's a promise. You will find. The question is, is will you seek? You see, what made these wise men so wise was that they were willing to act in faith upon the very few truths that God had revealed to them. I mean, you're them. You set out from Persia or Babylon to a foreign area. You have no idea where you're really going. You have no idea what to expect when you arrive. And yet, these men still made the decision to embark on a tough journey based upon, from my estimation, the instructions of a man who lived 500 years earlier. And they did this for one reason. They honestly believed that a king had been born worthy of their worship. You see, their little knowledge produced a big act of obedience, which resulted in a life-altering encounter with Jesus. It's not what you know, it's what you do with what you know. So why the detour to Jerusalem? I think it's safe to say that the wise men's 4G LTE access to the star hadn't gone through a drop zone. From my estimation, the only plausible conclusion you can reach 
as to why the star disappeared is that God wanted them to stop in Jerusalem before leading them to Bethlehem. That's interesting to me. You see, it tells me that in God's sovereignty, we can conclude that God intentionally led the wise men to Jerusalem so that the religious leaders, in addition to King Herod, would also know that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. Like, in a really fascinating twist to the Christmas story. Because Herod and these men, we, we often overlook. But do you realize that in them going to Jerusalem, God was extending the invitation. Jesus was extending an invitation for the religious establishment and the sadistic, murderous King Herod to also come and worship the King of Kings. That they were given an invitation to encounter Jesus for themselves. How sad it is that while the religious leaders were able to ascertain where the Christ was to be born, they, know they don't come. As a matter of fact, they, they demonstrate zero interest in seeing for themselves if this was true. Tragically, King Herod goes one step further. Matthew tells us Herod requests that the men bring a report of what they discover under the false pretense that he wants to go and worship the infant king as well. Herod's entire purpose is what? Well, we're told in verse 16, after the fact that when he saw that he had been deceived by the wise men, that he was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and, it's all, and, and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod was a believer. He just completely rejected it. The religious leaders, they failed to act out of what we would just call blatant unbelief. Herod's rejection of Jesus was based in the knowledge that it may just be true, and he couldn't accept it. Now keep in mind, like the wise men, Herod, as well as the scribes and the priests, had been exposed to the exact same amount of revelation as the wise men. They knew that the rightful king of the Jews had likely been born in Bethlehem, and yet they all, they all reject and resist this revelation. And why? And again, this is what I think makes them so relatable. In contrast to the wise men who acted upon in simple faith to what they knew, these men refused to act on what they knew to be true because they understood what the implications would be. Herod and the religious leaders realized that Jesus was a direct threat to their power. In closing, all of these characters, every one of them, are relatable. They're relatable to you and to I because their revelation, the revelation they were given, is the same. It was the revelation of Jesus brought forth through God's word. That's what we have today. You see, God's word then and today testifies that Jesus was born. God's word testifies that Jesus lived among us, that he died for us, and that he rose on the third day. God's word testifies that you can experience a transforming encounter with Jesus. The same one the wise men had, 
the one that they enjoyed. Or God's word testifies that you can reject Jesus because he's a threat to your power, just as Herod and the religious men did. I just want to issue a simple challenge. Are you willing to receive the revelation that God has provided you? Are you willing to act upon what you know to be true? And in the case of Jesus, to humble yourself, to bend your knee, and to worship the King of Kings? Or, while knowing the truth, will you continue to resist, like Herod and the religious establishment, the rightful king to the throne? Because if you're honest, you're just unwilling to accept the ramifications. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth of why people reject Jesus? I find that it's not, it's not the knowledge. It's not the amount of revelation. I find that so many people know who Jesus is, know what Jesus done, know the invitation he offers, but they reject Jesus not out of a knowledge of fact, but out of a knowledge of implication out of the knowledge that if I were to accept who Jesus is in my life, that means I can't be in control any longer because there is a king much higher than me. People reject Jesus not because they don't don't know who he is, but they know what they would have to give up to accept him. The wise men, they encountered Jesus because they were willing to accept the the ramifications. They were willing to worship. They were included in his story. Herod, the religious leaders, they opposed Jesus because they were unwilling to cede power, to cede control. In your life, friend, there is only one throne and only one person can sit on it. God created us to be worshipers. He created a dynamic whereby there was God and there was man and there was creation. And creation was to be in submission to man as man was to be in submission to God. And then when man rebelled against God, God allowed creation to rebel against man. For what purpose? So that as man runs around trying to find out who to put on the throne, everything rebels and nothing works so that he gets himself off, his eyes off of self and off of what's around and back to a higher authority, back to God. Have you ever thought to yourself, why is it that all of these things I pursue, all of these things I submit to, all of these things I worship, all of these things I hail to be the savior from my misery, let me down? It's because they're designed to rebel against you so that you will turn your attention to the only rightful king, the one born king, Jesus. Jesus is more than a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He's a king. And why has he come? Why does he want to be king in your life? Is it because he wants to rule with an iron scepter? He wants to stomp you down and place you... No, Jesus came, I came so that your burden would be easy and your yoke light. 
I came so that you might have life and that more abundantly. I came to take those who were held captive and to set you free. Jesus is not a king because he demands to be a king. He's a king because he earned the right to be a king. Because he came to die for our sins. He came to do the one thing we can't do. And that's atone. The wise men, they didn't have a lot of information, but they acted upon what they knew. And thus we've called them wise for centuries. Herod was a fool. Why? Because he knew the truth, but he refused to allow the truth to set him free. And he dies soon after this, a miserable death. And the religious establishment, they don't just reject Jesus here. What does God do? He gives them more and more and more revelation. So much so that they continue to resist, continue to resist, continue to resist, and so much so they have to silence the very conscience in their mind so they nail him to a tree. Same group who knew he was to be born. And they've got the prophecies of Daniel, and when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, they should have known it then. You can only reject Jesus for so long before you'll become hostile. To not just Jesus, but those who follow him. One of my favorite Christmas carols. And instead of doxology, I'm just going to close, like I did last Sunday, by reading a carol. But one of my favorite is We Three Kings. It's an interesting carol. No one actually historically does it the way that it was designed to. It was designed to be done by a group of men. And there was a, 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 the, the opening stanza and the final stanza they were to sing together. And then there's a refrain they were to sing together. And then three of them were to sing each of these other verses about gold, frankincense, and myrrh uh, as solos. And it was designed to do it. No one does it this way. And I'm not going to read all of it in that regard. But I do want to read. I want to read it because I, I find it to be powerful. We three kings of Orient are. Bearing gifts we traverse far, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And then this is the refrain that they'll repeat. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. And then the next guy sings, Frankincense, to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him, God most high. And then the third man, myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breeze of life, of gathering gloom. Sorrow, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Glorious now, they all sing this together. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah, earth to heaven replies. 
O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. And so, Father, that's what we ask.